0: I'm doing something that I said I wasn't going to do today, and that is uh, we're going back across the pond, um, as it were. I said that we were going to be staying in America, and I, I just flat out lied to you. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna go back uh, because as as Baptists we we cannot probably pass over talking about Charles Spurgeon, um, who stands as the monumental in in English speaking. The English-speaking world, uh, he is the monumental churchman of the 1800s. There is no one who comes quite close to him. Um, I'm going to try and get through uh, his biography and stuff. There's a lot to say about him, and I don't want to take up too much of our time. Um, I don't want, and and what I mean by that is I I don't want to go till 11 o'clock talking about Charles Spurgeon. Um, He was born in 1834, raised by his grandparents. Um, His grandmother. used to, they they worked very hard with Charles. He was a very, very bright kid um, very early on. Grandma would pay him a nickel for every Isaac Watts hymn that he memorized, um, which would pay him dividends later in life. Uh, when he, he's gonna, while pastor of the, the tabernacle, um, he is going to write a hymn book for them and it's going to be chocked full of isaac watts hymns it's just it's almost just a compendium of isaac watts hymns and so it clearly made an impact on him um but even though he was born in 1834 he wasn't saved until uh, 1850 when he was 15. he was walking to some other appointment and a snowstorm hit and he had to divert into this little methodist chapel and um, He heard the word of God preached from Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 22, uh, and he was, he says, converted at that moment, Um, and so Charles gave his life over to the Lord, and then what happens after that is unfathomable in where it goes and how quickly it goes, and so part of it is a testimony to to how not to do things, Um, and so... In 1850, he's 15. He's converted. By um, th- that was in January. By April of that year, he is admitted as a Baptist, as a member of a Baptist church in a place called Newmarket. No place names in England mean anything to me, so do with that what you will. On May 3rd, he was baptized. Okay, so he's admitted as a member, baptized on May 3rd in a river, which is why they probably postponed it till May, so the river was at least a little warmer for him um by the end of that year so before he is one full year as a christian he is teaching sunday school for them Mm. he preaches his first sermon in the winter of 1850 to 1851 so before he again is one year as a christian he's preached his first sermon he takes his first church as a pastorate in 1851 so that's before he has been a christian for two years and he is currently 17 years old he serves there for 2 years and by the april of 1854 which again is now 4 years removed from his simply being admitted as a not even 4 years removed from from being baptized just being a um a believer and being admitted as a believer in a baptist church he is he is preaching probation, uh, probationary preaching basically means that he was preaching in view of a call at something called Park Street Chapel. Now, it's easy and, and, and tempting to think, well, okay, so he's 17, and this must be another small church. He went to a small church before the first church was small. This must be a small church as well. It is not a small church. It is one of the major churches in England. Um, he is barely 19 years old. He is barely four years a Christian. Park Street um, Church. Park, New Park Street Chapel um, was the former church of And so he was called to pastor that congregation of some 300 souls when he was a mere 19 years old. Um, So the first thing that we, we come to is this sort of Meteoric rise, right? And and when you hear about how quickly all that happens for him, there's two things that pop out. One is he must have been from the very moment that he stepped into a pulpit something else, right? Like it was it was it would have been obvious for people who heard him um, that that this child was incredibly gifted in the word and in oratory skills, and so um, this talent that he had was clearly something that that was obvious and seen by all people the second thing is um that it seems as though that is an incredibly unwise thing to do i just spurgeon might be the exception that proves the rule it worked out for spurgeon spurgeon was sort of impenetrable by the difficulties of his world and he stayed stalwart faithful throughout the rest of his life. Um, there are, the pages of history are, the trash can of history, I should say, is littered with people that you don't know of who were incredibly talented, as talented as Spurgeon was, was given the same opportunities that Spurgeon was and absolutely burned themselves in the faith. They, they wasted away. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, in verse 6, talking about elders. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Um, Paul doesn't tell us what a recent convert is, so maybe Spurgeon and the people of Park Street didn't consider him a recent convert, but four years along is an awfully quick time. Um, so it, it's, it's weird to me that Spurgeon made it through um, and it's a testimony to the kindness of God in his life. But, but man, by the time he's 22, he is the most famous preacher in all of England. And, and so this is not like a fame that came to him building his ministry over years. This was a fame that came to him almost immediately. The second that this man stepped into a pulpit, people stopped what they were doing and listened. Um, one thinks of somebody like Kanye West, right? Right? was a big deal when Kanye West became a Christian and that that dude needed to do one thing and one thing before he did anything else and that was absolutely step out of the public light get in a small church where he could be he could be helped and aided but that was never going to happen the spotlight was always going to be on him and um and it doesn't always end well so um by the time he's 22, he, his sermons are starting to be published, being sold for like a nickel out on the street, and people, um, people are taking notes. So he walks, he writes out all of his sermons, but he goes with just note cards into the pulpit, and um, he has people writing down his sermons as he goes, like word for word, if they can keep up with it. They then, they then type those up. I don't know where, I don't know how old typewriters are. I'm ignorant of that. So however they do it, they eventually publish these things, and they're selling them for a nickel on the, on the street, and people are starting to hear of him. Um, This doesn't mean that he was really well-received. His preaching sounded different than the way other people preached. Um, We got the same kind of thing with John Wesley and with Whitfield. The Anglican church tends to be, in the British word, stuffy, right? That there's a proper way to do things and there's an improper way to do things. And Whitfield rubbed people the wrong way. The Wesleys rubbed people the wrong way. Um, Spurgeon wasn't part of the Church of England, uh, but he was English and he also rubbed people the wrong way. By the time 1855 rolls around, um, the Essex Standard wrote uh, this kind of comment on his preaching uh, Spurgeon's style is that of a vulgar colloquial, varied by rant. All the most solemn mysteries of our holy religion are by him rudely, roughly, and impiously handled. Common sense is outraged and decency disgusted. His rantings are interspersed with coarse anecdotes. It's true, uh, I don't know about the rantings part, but he used, he used the same kind of speech that, I don't know, somebody you can go back in history and think of somebody like Jesus. And, and he used like events that happened in the world that day to illustrate the points that he was doing. Actually, the genius of Spurgeon's preaching, by far and away, are just his ability to use illustrations. Like no one used illustrations as well as Charles Spurgeon. Like, that was the genius of all this. It just kind of gets boiled down to that. And that's the very thing that they're complaining about. Um, later on, um, people critiqued him by saying, He is a nine days wonder, a comet that has suddenly shot across the religious atmosphere. He has, caught, he has gone up like a rocket, and ere long will come down like a stick, uh, which I kind of like. Um, Mr. Spurgeon was absolutely destitute of intellectual benevolence. Even the way these people write, absolutely destitute of intellectual benevolence. If men saw as he did, they were orthodox. If they saw some things in some other way, they were heterodox, um, pestilent, and unfit to lead the minds of students or inquirers. Mr. Spurgeon's was a superlative egotism. Not the shilly-shallying, timid, half-disgusted egotism that cuts off its own head, but the full-grown, overpowering, sublime egotism that takes, like somebody who writes like that talking about egotism is just, it's too much, Uh, that takes the chief seat as if by right. The only colors which Mr. Spurgeon recognized were black and white. And that is not fair to Charles Spurgeon at all. Like, it's one thing to criticize him for preaching the truth, but Charles was very, very big-tent like he 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 was okay with people so long as they truly and honestly believed in he believed in Jesus Christ he was good with them and he he would go so far as numerous times to say i'm not so ignorant of the graces of Christ to think that people in the catholic church couldn't be saved so he that is That is way bigger tent than any baptist in the 19th century dared go and so the the idea that that he was like if you look if you've got to be exactly like i am in order to in order to be saved um is just a ridiculous thing um his preaching was biblical it was straight to the point it was very easy to follow and it was picturesque um this is why he is generally known as the Prince of Preachers, which is actually a label that his son gave to him, but it's it stuck um, between him and John Chrysostom in history. Uh, those two are probably up for the greatest non-Jesus preachers of all time, and Paul might want to throw his hat in there um, as well. But I think we're talking post New Testament. So, um, if you if you if you look back, the the greatest superlatives were given to basically two people as preachers. Um, Whitfield would be in there as well, Spurgeon and Chrysostom, and so just brilliant. Um, he, if you took up all of his sermons, he preached all the time. If you took up all of his sermons, they they currently fill 63 volumes um, worth of writings, which is the largest um, collection of Christian writings by any one person in the history of Christendom. Um, and so part of this was due to the fact that they wrote down everything that he, he did. Um, he was a man of incredible industriousness, which we will... Um, get to. Uh, he preached for hours and and did so without the aid of mics um, and preached to incredibly large crowds. Um, Metro uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle was where he was for some 38 years. Um, he did a number of different things too. So in his church life and societies, um, the amount of things that he had his hands in that he did was just amazing so he first started printing um, a a periodical called the sword and the trowel which you have probably heard of um, in 1865 it's a monthly magazine uh, featuring opinions by him quotes by him um, sermons of his at times and then uh, featuring also other other baptist ministers who might write and and they would um take in You can find the full set of those. It's really just recently been collected, the full set of Sword and Trowels, and you can find them. They're free online at spurgeon.org. And you should be happy to know that um, the greatest collection of Spurgeon stuff uh, is found at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which you help to fund through cooperative program giving. So uh, a lot of their stuff is available online. Again, you can just go to spurgeon.org, and you can find that. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have record... I don't know that we ever have a recording of him preaching. I don't think we do. Uh, we have a, a recording of his son preaching, but his son is, alas, not him. So um, besides the sword in the trowel, the other thing that he is well known for is the Stockwell Orphanage. He was a, a very close friend of George Mueller. And so through the Metropolitan Tabernacle, so New Park Street Church eventually outgrows the building that they're in. They need to build a new building. That new building is the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Um, that tabernacle... Um, seats somewhere about 5,000 people. And with another standing room for about a 1,000 other people, and uh, they filled it on the regular, um, which means that they had money. They had money that flowed into that place. Um, they then redirected that back outward. So the orphanage was one of the things that they started in there. Um, in 1867, they started it. it. They took in 240 boys. Um, if you know anything about the Industrial Revolution at this time, is that orphans were incredibly hard to do. Uh, you can also find this out by reading any single Charles Dickens novel in the world, because they all revolved around orphans. So um, anyway, so this is a huge, huge issue in England, and um, Spurgeon and the Metropolitan Tabernacle are are taking up their part of it. Um, It's a set of buildings that took up about four acres in London, Um, and Spurgeon would use the occasion of his birthday to hold a fair and a festival to raise funds for it. Um, And so uh, I didn't translate this into modern money um, but it's said that he could raise up to a 1,000 pounds in one day, um, which is kind of an amazing feat because the cost of entrance into that was pennies. Um, so to think that you could raise a $1,000 by charging people pennies to get into something um, shows you how, how well-known they were and how attractive that ministry was. Um, there are also other societies within the church. Those, those buildings, by the way, stood up until the bombing of London In World War II, and then they were demolished. They rebuilt them, and and there's still that association still um, connected to Spurgeon's name. Multiple other societies within the church. So when you hear him being connected to societies, you need to realize that those are just ministries within the church. They just called them societies instead of ministries. I don't know exactly where that comes from. Um, Most of them were given over to benevolence causes, some to education, some to hospitals. Um, Spurgeon was very clear that these are the things that we have to do. We have to be engaged in this kind of stuff. Um, What you're going to find is that liberalism is close on Spurgeon's tail, and then you get the fundamentalists in the late uh, 1800s and early 1900s, which um, one of their chief problems that they are going to to provide for us today, still lingering, is this distinction between the social gospel and the written gospel. And that was unheard of in Spurgeon's Day. This was all gospel work in Spurgeon's Day. So doing doing orphanages wasn't separated from like preaching the word of God. This was all part and parcel of doing the gospel. Um, And so they were involved in all these things. It was said at one point in time that he had up to 69 different ministries that he was the head of or over that included his regular, that didn't include all of his regular preaching and the fact that his wife, who had given birth to two twin boys, um, sometime later in her life became almost an invalid. Um, She couldn't move. As a matter of fact, the last 27 years of Charles' life, I don't believe she ever heard one sermon That he gave because she was unable to go. Um, So one of the things you get when you hear that is to say it would be, you've got to be careful with it, right? But you kind of want to say, nah, like he, he didn't do all those things well. Like you can't head 69 ministries, preach as much as he did, and be a really good husband all at the same time. And we haven't even gotten to his health problems, which were many. Um, it, seems imp- it seems like he lived like four lifetimes. And so he's just one of those guys where you hear over the course of his life the things that he accomplished, and you're just kind of left scratching your head saying, you know, he, he died when he was 57. It's not like he died when he was super old. So you're just kind left, of left sort of scratching your head saying, I don't know how he accomplished that. I don't know how he got all that stuff done. Um, one of the last things that he did was... Um, uh, start something called the Pastors College, so a couple of guys early on in his ministry came up to him and said, I want to be trained for the ministry, and then he he started training them, and then a couple more guys came, and then more guys came, and he, he eventually said, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And the church said, yeah, you, you need to. And so they they set aside money to form this college. And and he started um, taking in people on the regular and, and had a, a schedule set up to, to teach them how to be pastors, how to be Baptist ministers at this college. Um, eventually, it um, by 1892, it had served almost 900 students. Um, and in the early part of the 1900s, 1920s, it changed its name to Spurgeon College instead of the Pastors College. Um, you have probably read something by Spurgeon. Um, his evening and morning, or morning and evening devotionals, are very, very popular. Um, they're excellent as well. I would there's there's nothing that Spurgeon wrote that I'm going to tell you is an excellent. So you should read. If you get something by Charles Spurgeon, you should and then read it. Um, don't let it sit on your shelf, but like actually actually do it. There's some books that you should buy and then just let it sit on your shelf um, and don't pick up because they look nice. There are other books that you should like actually read, and, and Spurgeon's are those. Um, he has uh, <clears throat> two, two books in particular that are important. Um, lectures to My Students, um, which is uh, basically a compendium of like uh, uh, sort of informal lectures that he gave to uh, members of the Pastors College, um, which are really, really helpful. And then The Soul Winner is another one. Um, we'll read a little bit from, from both of these. Here in a second, let me check the time. Yeah, we can probably do that. But we'll do that in just a minute. Um, we do need to talk of his sufferings. Um, so we talked about his wife. His, his boys were fine. They, they lived healthy lives. Um, his wife um, did suffer that illness, and he um, seemed to care about her very much. He didn't, um, it, you wonder how much he was actually at her bedside. Um, but then he, he also then had medical issues of his own, He had uh, three major um, health issues, the first of which was gout. Um, Gout was um, reported to have been a problem of his since the time he was 33. Um, He, I I don't, my father has gout. I don't, I've never had it. Um, But it's basically crystals of urate that form in your joints, that make it intensely painful for you to do anything, include exist. So, um, and today we've got certain treatments for gout and certain ways to prevent it. We know better what foods to avoid and what foods to eat. Uh, back then they didn't. And there were there were times when he was completely and utterly bedridden and he couldn't move because the gout was so severe in him. Um, he has a, a good quote. He's got a, he, so, if you sanctified Martin Luther's wit, it would, it would sound like Charles Spurgeon, okay? Um, so this is what Spurgeon said about his gout. Um, it was true, he said, that he had had the gout. I love the fact that they call it the gout as well. It's like a, you can almost read that like the goat, um, but it's the gout. <clears throat> and a very horrible pain it was. But he had had the gout in his left leg, and he had preached standing on the other. He had not had the goat in, the gout, <laughs> He had not had the gout in his tongue, and he was not aware that people preached with their legs. Um, so in talking, about, in talking about how he was able to go along with this, so again, if he just had pain, he would just suffer through it while he preached, and, and none of these things affected his tongue, and so he was quite able to go along with it. He also had Bright's disease, uh, which was an inflammation of the kidney, um, which is one of the things that would eventually um, take part in killing him. Um, there was also severe and abiding depression. He, he was racked with depression. Um, no one knows, you know, it's, it's depression. It might not be linked to anything at all. Um, there was one incident in his life that people like to look back at and say, this changed the Spurgeon that we knew. So if you knew him before this incident and you knew him after this incident, he was, it was something of a different man. Um, they had... Um, set to have him preach at um, a place called Surrey, and it was the um, Crystal, not the Crystal Palace, it was um, the Royal Theater in Surrey, Royal Surrey Gardens. There were about 10,000 people that had gathered to hear him preach. You'd have to get there about a half an hour to an hour early to find a seat, and then there was a standing room. <clears throat> and just before Spurgeon got up to preach, somebody in that 10,000 person packed audience. So they're, they're not just in the seats packed in, but they're standing up around the side. Somebody yells, fire. And um, there's just a mass exodus of people. And uh, I think seven people were trampled and died. And you hear about these things all the time. You hear about them at concerts. There's a, um, this has happened. Um, it's not just a thing in the, the 19th century. This has happened at concerts. Um, in the 20th century as well. Anytime you have a large gathering of people like that. So, Spurgeon took that really, really hard. Um, On a needing to, he blamed himself for their deaths. There was a lot of other injuries. Um, But he preached to massive crowds again after that. Um, So, at Crystal Palace it was said that he preached to well over 23,000 people. They have the exact number because they were handing out tickets when they came in. So it was uh, 23,645 people that he preached to later on. So he got over it. He kept preaching to large crowds, but it was a difficulty for him. And his depression just racked him. Um, There were um, days when he could barely get out of bed to face the world. Uh, It was just horrible for him. Um, You know, in... He and he, The good thing about Spurgeon is that he uh, just freely talks about his problems. Like he, he's not ashamed of it. He just would tell people. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm. He, I don't. He wouldn't use the word depression. Right. That that's a clinical word that wouldn't come later. He actually he has a, a chapter in lectures to my students where he calls it the minister's fainting fits right? And it doesn't mean that he faints, but this, it's this time of incredible sorrow, and he talks about it, and he says, you know, these things are going to happen to you guys. And he wants them to be aware. It doesn't happen to every preacher. It's not like it's an inevitable consequence of preaching, um, but it happened to him, and he wants them to know, like, you're going to think success is the way out. You're going to think that that there's something wrong with you. This, is it. this happens to people, and he's trying to give them advice for it. Um, really um really deep depression and it and it makes his life um all the more amazing that this was something that racked him throughout the last 30 years of his life and pretty much the entire time that he was a pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle um but still faithfully and joyously preaching the lord um so the one thing that he actually did engage with when it came to controversy was something called the downgrade controversy um and it's a loose, a loose thing. Like, there's no, it's a controversy that happened in the late 19th century in England, but there's no one thing it's really attached to. It's attached to a couple of different things. Um, basically, he was the one who called it a downgrade. And what he meant was, it was just the, the removal of biblical understanding of things. And it was, it was basically liberalism had been creeping into some of the churches that he was associated with. Um, Not just that he had planted, but there was a Baptist union that he was a member of, and liberalism, theological liberalism, had started to creep into those churches. It included denying the infallibility of Scripture, um, denying the necessity and the sufficiency of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, um, denying the existence, either that it existed at all or that it was eternal um, of hell, and an affirmation of universalism. Um, And so these things were starting to spread up, and... And Spurgeon, throughout the entirety of his ministry, although he was um, somebody who obviously held a lot of clout, not only amongst Baptist churches but in England in general, just stayed away from it. Now, that didn't include slavery. He he drew a real hard line on slavery, so much so that Southern Baptists hated him. We we now have, we now have the largest collection of Spurgeon stuff at Midwestern. But Spurgeon said, if I would never let any slaveholder, I would never give him a seat at my table. I wouldn't let him come into my church until he repented. Like, he was very, very firm with it. So, um, that annoyed a lot of people in the South of America, and they, they did not hold him in high regard. But, um, there were very few controversies that he actually engaged himself in, um, although he had the opportunity to, but this is one that he did. Uh, he felt like he couldn't back out of it. Um, all in all, in the, in the corpus of his life, um, there are very few bad things to say about Spurgeon. He was a pious man, he was a holy man. Um, you can nitpick uh, the way he talks about prayer is, um, he, he says lovely things about prayer, but he also says things like, you know, prayer is like going into the bank. And uh, I don't go into the bank teller and talk to them about the weather. I say I need a five pound note and they give it to me, and I leave. And and he's like, that's what prayer should be like. Go in knowing what you want, ask God for it, and get out. Um, so it's not that he didn't pray all the time. He just had this like, it didn't, even the idea of making prayer sound like it's a transactional thing is a little bit problematic. But that's apparently how he prayed, and um, that doesn't mean that there wasn't more to it than that. But nevertheless, so you can you can nitpick on things, but for the most part, he was really, really a wonderful man, and and did a lot of work for, um, for the Lord in London at that time. I wanted to, I did want to read for you just a couple of things. Sorry, I know I usually try to ask questions, and we just got kind of caught up. I did want to ask or read a couple of things to you. One of my favorite bits um, to talk about his wit, um, is a passage that he talks about when in lectures to my students. The lecture is about um, always becoming better. So he's, he's trying to tell people, you need to, you need to progress. Just keep working at getting better, whether that means furthering your education, working on your, your diction, working on how you speak, working on, on moving in your sermons, like editing your sermons, going over your sermons. Just try to always get better, always be advancing. So it's called The Necessity of Ministerial Progress. And um, he has this little bit. This is, this is just fantastic. Um, there are brethren in the ministry whose speech is intolerable. Either they rouse you to wrath or else they send you to sleep. No choral can ever equal some discourses in sleep-giving properties. No human being, unless gifted with infinite patience, could long endure to listen to them. And nature does well to give the victim deliverance through sleep. I heard one say the other day that a, cer- that a certain preacher had no more gifts for the ministry than an oyster. And in my own judgment, that, this was a slander on the oyster for that, worthy, for that worthy bivalve shows great discretion in his openings and knows when to close. That's a fantastic quote, like the slander on the oyster. Um, his, his, all of his writings are littered with things like that. They're littered with just a brilliant way of putting things, brilliant illustrations for things, um, really, really helpful um, on, page, uh, on page 341. That's my reference. You don't need to know that. Um, Uh, He's talking about how to um, convert people in preaching. And he says, some people need to have logic given to them. They just need cold logic. So this is the time of Darwin and time of other other folks. And um, philosophy is important to people. Um, And so he he says, some people need that. But um, the class requiring logical argument is small compared with the number of those who need to be pleaded with. Excuse me, by way of emotional persuasion, they require not so much reasoning as heart argument they, they require not so much reasoning as heart argument, or what he says there i 'm not reading it the way that 's helpful for you to understand they don 't need logic what they need is heart argument is what he means, which is logic set on fire it 's just a beautiful way of um, depicting that uh, again his his writing is just kind of filled with that stuff. Um, One quick thing from uh, the Soul Winner, and then I'll I'll take questions if anyone has them. Um, Talking about pleading with people uh, to come to know Jesus. Um, Let's see where I want to start. So, when a man has to speak for Christ, if he is not earnest, let him go to bed you smile, um, and this is about again about pleading for people to come to know Christ. If he is not earnest, let him go to bed. You smile, but is it not better that he should go to bed than send a whole congregation to sleep without their going to bed? Yes, we must be downright earnest. If we are to prevail with men, we must love them. There is a genuine love to men that some have, and there is a genuine dislike to men that others have. I know gentlemen whom I esteem in a way. Who seem to think that the working classes are a shockingly bad lot to be kept in check and governed with vigor. With such views, they will never convert the working men. To win men, you must feel. I am one of them. If they are a sad lot, I am one of them. If they are lost sinners, I am one of them. If they need a savior, <coughs> sorry, I am one of them. To the very chief of sinners, you should preach with this text before you. Such were some of you. Grace alone makes us differ. And that grace we preach. Genuine love to God and fervent love to man make up the great qualification for the pleader. So, just his um, writings are filled with a desire to see people come to know the Lord. Now, one of the bad effects of people like Whitfield and people like Spurgeon is the culture that we have today where preachers are not so much given over to the things that Spurgeon was given over to but given over to things that accompanied Spurgeon which is the attention and the notoriety which came to Spurgeon quite apart from his seeking it we don't find that he actually sought much of it it just kind of came to him Um, I don't think we should put that down as a knock on on him Whitfield by the way I think sought it Spurgeon doesn't seem to have sought it very much Um, when he died he left uh, 2,000 pounds, which is, I mean, if you went to an inflation calculator from, I don't know, pounds, uh, British dollars, we'll call it, because that's what everything should be called, um, British dollars in in 1860-something or 1890-something, whenever he, he actually died. I don't remember when it was. Um, if you... If you were to translate that, I'm sure that 2,000 pounds is still a considerable sum to have left his wife. Um, It's paltry compared to what he made in his life. He made millions of dollars selling his sermons and selling books, millions of dollars. And he just funneled all of it back into the tabernacle and to their ministries, continually gave money away to start orphanages and hospitals and stuff like that. So... Um, great man. If you get a chance to read anything that he wrote, I would highly recommend it. Um, and uh, you can't listen to his preaching, but there's 63 volumes. You can't go wrong. Uh, and you'll find that that his, he, uh, the, okay, because we can You should preach like Charles Spurgeon, but you shouldn't do what he did to preach. He just like, what are we preaching on today? We're, uh, Zechariah 14, I guess, like, he, he talks about how to pick a text, and he's basically like, well, the Bible's there. You should just use that. So his idea was that, that if you preach enough, you're gonna hit, you're not gonna, you're not gonna ride hobby horses. You're just gonna preach Christ, and again, okay, Chuck, that might work for you. I don't think that that works for the average Joe. Um, it's a dangerous game to play, so, but, um, but read his stuff if you get a chance to. It's very, very edifying and good. So, any questions this morning? Sorry. Thank you, Mark. What? Yeah, and just about how, like, yeah, and, and part of his reaction, um, so again, I guess historical situation helps. What he's fighting are two different things that, that happens based off of Puritanism and then based off of Anglicanism. So you've got, you've got men who are going to stand in front of people and utter over-the-top eloquent prayers that, or three things I guess, over-the-top eloquent prayers that, that have no benefit for the people there and are only there for their own show. You have Anglicans who are reading prayers that they either do or do not feel, in, in his opinion. They, they don't have much feeling when it comes to them. Or you've got people in the pews who, in, in his words, just say, Lord, 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 over and over and over again as though that's a benefit to them. Right? And so all of those things kind of combine to say, hey, tell the Lord what you want, and, and he'll give it to you. Right? Um, that is a bit of an overreaction, but there's at least a sense of why he's reacting that way. He wants it to be simple language. And that's what he means by, by going into a bank teller, and I give him a, I, I look at him and I say, I want a five-pound note. He doesn't just mean it, it, it's to be curt. He means stop beating around the bush and get to what you want, you know, um, I think part of that's fine. I think preambles and prayers are pr- probably okay as well to set your mind in the right frame. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he, he he's very clear about prayer, that praying things... Um, and he was really specific about this, praying things that the Bible already talks to you about is the best way to pray. Because that way, when you say in Jesus' name, you're pretty sure it is in Jesus' name, right? So praying the praying the things of Jesus after him. And again, Spurgeon's, Spurgeon's ministry was built around, he did a lot of good, but when it came to him talking to people and preaching, it was really conversion-driven, which is probably also a bad thing in the end. Like, that's not helpful that that picture has become warped in modern day um and we'll get to that as well when we talk about mega churches and things like that um but uh that that is a bit of the idea too is to just help people come to know the lord so and and part of that is that's probably what he prayed for a lot and that's biblical like he he just thought you pray about the things in the bible So that probably happened once or twice. He did, he did write his Sunday sermons on Saturday night, uh, which makes me feel better. Uh, <laughs> not because I do it, but because I don't do it. But the deal is he is also, he's preaching several times throughout the week. And so um, he, he basically would, the general gist of what he would do, which was a very Puritan type thing too, if you read the Puritans, they're not preaching over sections of text. They're just preaching like a verse and that's often what he would do he would find a verse and then he would just say like hey consider these things coming out of that verse and so part of it was just him like randomly coming around to knowing what he was supposed to to preach on but it's not a good tactic for i mean if you're charles spurgeon you can do that if you're a normal bloke you can't you can't do that and have it be be qual- of quality at all the good thing is that when you read through like lectures to my students he makes it very clear. Like you need to do what is best for you and for your congregation. You can't you you're not to be you know, follow the pattern of everybody else. So but yeah, it's not worth worth <laughs> modeling yourself after. without asking. Without asking, yes. yeah. Right. Kind of on right. Not, not really doing the prep work, but just expecting God to meet needs me and somehow it's like, yeah. still happening. And yeah, that so Spurgeon didn't do that. Yeah. There's a there's a bit of a difference though, and that Spurgeon um was doing all these things through his church. And so it didn't make sense to not mention it to the church. Like the context is much different. I, I think that that's that sounds really pious. I don't think that it... I always struggled with Mueller with that. I don't think it's actually biblical. Like the whole um, praying to God is one thing, but you have not because you ask not. It's, it also works with people as well. Like expecting people to be able to read your mind or, you know. I think it's it's probably fine. But there's a fine line, yeah. right? Between between mail, <laughs> mail bombing people and pleading with them for money continuously and, and then... And then having to close down the doors because no one gave anything, and they're like, "I don't didn't know that you needed that, right?" So there's a there's a give and take there. Yeah, yeah. But Spurgeon um, didn't follow Mueller in that when it came to the orphanage. He's, he he told people, "You should give. This is a good thing. Give to it." Yeah, he was very clear. So, how old were his boys when his was? I think ten. So, I think it happened about a decade after they were born. So, I, um. I know that she, at some point, um, I don't think it was an accident or anything like that. I think it was a medical condition. At some point, um, there was a famous doctor um, who had tried to do some really radical um, spinal surgeries on her that did not take. I don't, I don't know that they hurt her any, um, but they didn't improve her condition. Um, so I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. It didn't sound like it was an accident. It sounded like life happened or It wasn't like a carriage accident or something like that. I, I, I don't actually know though. I don't know. And again, one of the strange things about Spurgeon and all these great men in particular, we, we've heard it with, with Whitfield, with Wesley, with others, is they don't seem to, their marriages are never like upheld as beautiful things. They're just not, which is alarming. And at some level it's alarming, right? Um, you just don't have that it's fine if you're augustine and you're not married right but for all these other and and william Carey would be another one who's, who's is he we uphold him as doing great things for the lord but we would then also say we we don't we either don't hear much about his marriage or it's just not something that you should model yourself after which is shows everybody has weaknesses right and those are yeah i and you don't, hear that, you don't hear that Spurgeon was a bad husband. You hear that he worked 18 hours a day, right? And he was, then, then he was also racked with gout and depression and had 69 other ministries to watch over. And so you, you're wondering what time is left for his wife who can't get up, right? She can't move. Um, but that, that doesn't mean that he's not, for all I know, he could have been in the room with her doing a lot of that work with her by his side. I think I would have read that though. But You should. Is it one of those books that you're supposed to just leave on your shelf? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Spurgeon's wife or okay. I think, yeah, I think that there's, there's also a difference in 19th century British life and what husbands and wives looked like and what was culturally acceptable and what they expected from their spouses, right? So, um, and some of that wouldn't have been Charles' fault, um, but those things always also need to be reconciled with what the Bible instructs us to, to have and, and to be, and so um, the Lord, Lord can deal with that we just, it's just worthy of, of noting that um, that's not one of the first things that comes to mind when people think of, of Charles or, or just in general, any of the great men that you hear about in church history. So, although Luther was a bit different. In that case, L- Luther and Katie were, were known, he was known as loving her incredibly. And so that's a mark on the, on the plus category for Luther. As much as I talk about him, in somewhat negative terms, I love Luther. I just wish that he had been he had a better filter his 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 filter had had huge gaping holes in it, right? like somebody had thrown a softball through that thing and and things just leaked through. but he did love Katie quite a bit, so all right. Um, anything else? We're five minutes late, but the kids aren't here yet, so we got time. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's there's a there's a reason why there's a reason why he could pick out or or sit in bed and have one passage come to mind, and be able to immediately pull four points and a conclusion out of it, right? Like he was able to do that without looking at scripture because he had it memorized; it was in his bank. So I, yeah, that's <laughs> right. And as true as that as true as that is, I still it still makes me weebly wobbly to think that two years after he's converted, somebody's given him a pastorate. I just, you know, again, I think, I think he's, well, I don't think that you can compare an apostle to a normal, a normal bloke. So, but yeah, 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 I, I I get that, but he's also, you know, 17 at the time right? So he is, he is 17, he's two years a believer. He is quite, quite literally the exception that proves the rule. Like, there's a reason why Spurgeon is unusual because that stuff normally buries dudes. And buries them a, a very, very, like Paul's very clear, that's the condemnation of the devil. And for, Paul, for, for Spurgeon to not be given over to pride, given the meteoric rise, and his continu- like that, that thing about the rocket, he went up like a rocket and that dude just never came down. He just burned for 38 years in the Metropolitan, Tabern- Metropolitan Tabernacle. Um, he should, one of the bad things about him, though, was that he named that church the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Make it shorter, man. Metro Baptist Church. How hard is that? It's not hard to do. All right, well, let's pray, and uh, we can um, chat with one another. Father God, I am thankful for um, Charles Spurgeon. I'm thankful for all of the good that he left for us. And we, we can um, find things, I think, over history and the course of time to, to say we wish that this was different or, or this maybe was not great. We can do that for any men, and certainly, um, if we are so blessed to have people look back on our lives... Um, that, that will certainly be the case for us, and people will be able to critique us for being things or not being things that they think we should or shouldn't have been. But there is a legacy left by the ministries of Charles Spurgeon um, that we are just really grateful for. We're grateful for his commitment to the Word. We're grateful for his desire to um, lead people to knowing the Lord. We are grateful for the wonderful things that he did for the people of London and the area around and how he um, motivated people and moved people to care for the weak and the poor. Um, there is everything to applaud in in the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, when it comes to these things that we should model ourselves. And so we're very grateful for it. Um, I'm very grateful to be able to study him. I pray that um, that our legacy will be much in the same as his. I pray, Father, for us as we um, not only close out Sunday school, but have time of fellowship and and seek to worship you. Um, that all will be done for your glory, all will be done for your good, and that in the in the vein of of Charles Spurgeon, that you would save people here today in Jesus' name. Amen.